we'll open it up to anything from this week to the three weeks before, and uh, you guys can we, we need mic, we need another microphone person. Can we get a microphone person too? What's the term for the person who hands out the microphones? MC. We need a second MC. Jonah, you want to MC? And the mic right over here. Okay, Naomi. So my question is, um, it comes from when we looked at Isaiah 53. Yes. Um, and it says, surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. So it's past tense, and I was wondering... Why is it past tense if it's speaking about Ooh. the future? You got to read MacArthur's new book, um, right? <laughs> no, um, because, no, no, I, this is actually one of the points in this passage that um, John MacArthur, I'm sure others have pointed it out, but to my knowledge, I, I learned it from MacArthur, and um, is in, prophetically, right? Okay, so what's going to happen? Who is the we? He has borne our sorrow. Who, who, this is a plural speaking. Who's speaking here? I believe this is future repentant Israel. In, in, in um, Zechariah 12.10, I'll pour out upon them spirit of pleas and mercies when they look on me and him whom they've pierced. They'll grieve for him as for an only son. That's uh, Zechariah 12.10. MacArthur argues strongly, and I'm, I'm convinced, this is the actual confession, repentant, believing Israel, we, we killed him. We crucified him for all these years. We've esteemed him as nothing. For all these years, we've viewed him as cursed by God. Um, that this would be the future confession of repentant, believing Israel, looking back. Uh, that's the best answer I have for you. I, I, I haven't studied enough to like, say absolutely, but I heard MacArthur lay it out, and like, that works. And I know in his new, what's the name of his new book where he actually deals with this? Oh, come on, Linda. I'm going to let him know you don't know. Sitting on a kitchen table? The Gospel According to God. There you go. In The Gospel According to God, uh, he, it's an exposition of Isaiah 53 by John MacArthur. And uh, by all accounts, very, very good. I haven't read it yet, but by all accounts, very good. Uh, no, great question. Very observant. Oh, Dean LeVang. <laughs> From last week, you, you included the word travel, which I understand that, that the um, disciples were traveling, but they were also would be residing at some place for a period of time. Yeah. So I'm just curious why you, I guess, included travel and not just reasonable precautions as far as uh, a sword and, and um, knapsack and, and all of that. Well, I think in view of the context, he's, he references, when I sent you out before, he sent them out to travel. Um, you, just from the, from the geography of Israel, the most danger is going to beset you in the travel. I don't think it's, I'm not precluding other places. I think, the, I think the, when I sent you out before traveling with no money, with no knapsacks, with no shelter, now bring these things. And in this Gospel of Luke, you already have the story of the Samaritan on his way down from Jericho, not the Samaritan, the unnamed man on the way down from Jericho, getting hit by robbers and bandits. So I was basically assuming in that context, the most immediate context, when you go out to travel, I don't think it's precluding other places. I think that's in the first instance, if that makes sense. So I don't think Jesus is only saying, only while you're traveling, you can defend yourself. You're at home, you're out of luck, sorry. Um, no, I don't think that at all. Is that, okay. 
In the way back? Matt, you're getting it easy here. Uh, I guess I have a question because I, I guess I never noticed before where, you know, they fell asleep and it, and it says in the text, for sorrow. Uh, is that kind of reflected in the other Gospels? Uh, There's cause, more Because I, I missed that and I always thought, well, they just fell asleep because they didn't really know what was going on. And, it but, it, it but is. That, and, if, and one of the things I've avoided doing going through Luke is I've tried to harmonize as little as possible because I want Luke's telling to be what we're focusing on. Um, so sometimes I've heard some people, t- like, well, John MacArthur, he teaches through this. He brings everything Matthew and Mark and John have to bear on Luke. And Luke strips away a lot of those details. I believe it's Matthew has Jesus tell them three times. He, he tells them when he goes away. He gets up, comes back, tells them, wake up. Then he goes back to pray some more. Then he comes back and they're asleep again. Well, Luke drops those details. There's no conflict. He is, I think, capping that. I don't know if Matthew includes from sorrow or not. I can check quickly enough, I suppose. Um, let's see. Matthew. Um, Gethsemane. There the focus is on the flesh is weak. Watch and pray, verse 41 of chapter 26. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time he went away and prayed, um, verse 43, and again he came and found them asleep with their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away. So there, it's a focus on the weakness of their bodies, the flesh versus the spirit. I'm not sure what Mark has to add to that. Um, We can find that. Don't think John has an account of this. So... Um, maybe Mark 14. Found them sleeping. Verse Mark 14, 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So Matthew and Mark give the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak as potentially the reason Luke adds from sorrow. And I know in my own experience, when I'm discouraged, when I'm tired, you want to sleep. Well, yeah, no, that, that fits perfectly. Yeah. I'm just kind of, because the disciples didn't really know what was actually going to happen for sure. And so they, I was well, they did know. They, well, they, I mean, they, oh, sorry. Or, or go, did go. Well, maybe they did. I just, I was, I mean, how much, how much did you think they were comprehending at that time? I mean, well, it obviously <laughs> says they're in sorrow, so I'm just kind of. Well, no, clearly not much of it. But yeah. Jesus has told them in Luke 22, uh, 22, the Son of Man goes, has been determined, okay, 21, behold, the one who betrays me, his hand is on the table. Now, that doesn't say when. But when Jesus tells Peter, behold, the cock will crow three times tonight before you have betrayed me, now they know something's going down tonight. Um, some, in some sense, Satan has demanded to sift you. Peter's going to betray Jesus tonight. One of them is going to betray him. They, they know enough. They're, they're blameworthy. In, in Mark, Jesus rebukes them. Why couldn't you do this? So sure, in Luke's gospel, they've been pretty dumb and slow, and things have gone over their heads. And so clearly, they haven't grasped the full ramifications of what's been said, because if they had, they wouldn't have fallen asleep. But they're culpable 
for that failure. It's not like we can say it's not their fault. Um, they're just weary from sorrow, and so they took a nap. Instead well, of preparing. That was helpful because I, I never saw that ah. that word was in there. Yeah. And so it's kind of like they did kind of get it more than what I, I had thought in the past. So. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, oh, that's on it. So my name's Kelly. This is my second time here. Um, Hello, my, Kelly. My dear friend Elsa, who's been my friend for 20-plus years. I can't believe it. Um, invited me here, and I just have to say I'm so touched by the sincerity of this church. It's just so real. It makes me want to cry. I'm happy, but it's just amazing. Um, I just wanted to tag on to that great comment. It was very insightful. I think in all of our lives, um, the devil is in the details and in the distraction, Mm. and a lot of times whatever we're avoiding, the dark shadow in us is probably the thing we need to face. How many times have you had something really tough to do and you like find 20 other things that you would never do? Like suddenly you want to clean the garage or, you know, things that you just don't enjoy at all. So I I just wanted to add on to what he said. I think the apostles were distracted by the devil. And I mean, sometimes you can have things to do and suddenly you're overcome with the urge to sleep or talk on the phone or call a person or interact with people that you know aren't healthy for you. So I think in our day-to-day lives, it's the little choices we make that have the most monumental results. Right. So I, I just wanted to say, whatever you guys are doing here, it's really amazing. Okay. So I hope that's okay. And, okay. and if I'm in trouble, just blame Elsa, okay? <laughs> Elsa, Elsa we, need, we need to talk, Elsa. Sorry. No. no, thank you for the encouragement. No, no, absolutely. The text gives us, through the last chapter, a number of indications. Jesus says, when are you betray me? And even though initially they start asking, is it me, very quickly they start defending themselves. The only logic I can make of them getting into who's the greatest is, well, actually, were you with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? It won't be me. And they're trying to rank each other. Okay, which one of us is the most likely to betray him? And, and so that, that, that type of action is um, indicative of people who are going to fail tests. If you're worried about where you rank in spiritual maturity, that's probably not a good sign. They... Uh, Peter's boasting, oh, I'll never betray you. I will go with you even to death. And, and Jesus has to say, Peter, tonight, you're going to, you know, if you're overconfident in your own abilities. And Jesus is seeing the trouble coming and preparing for it. And like you said, they get distracted from it. And they, they don't see it as a priority. And Jesus understands. I, I, I hope you guys got the point I was trying to hammer this, this morning, which is that Jesus' success in the next 24 hours of his life is meant to be seen as a result of his battle here. And the disciples, for whatever reason, don't prioritize, the, 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 even though they've been told, Satan's coming after you. Not any lesser demon. Satan himself is coming after you. They don't prioritize it enough to stay awake and pray. Yes, Elsa. Even if you look at the behavior after the crucifixion, you know, they ran away and hid they didn't truly yet even then understand. Yeah, they didn't sit there and say, yes, I can't wait yeah. till Sunday. You know? yeah. No, they're just, they don't, it's just, yeah, they're broken. They're absolutely broken. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, in the back. Uh, when Jesus told him to uh, stay awake and watch, did was he telling them to watch for the soldiers or was he? 
What do you mean, just to pray? Or no, his his instructions in Luke. He says it twice, nearly identically, uh, in verse forty and in forty six. Um, he came to the place. He said to them, "Pray that you may not enter into temptation," which is exactly what he taught them to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Luke eleven. Lead us not into temptation, which is exactly what he told them to pray a little earlier in chapter 21 um, when he taught about his second coming, where he, he says, because of these things, um, verse 36, 21, 36, stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things which are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he's warned them, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. He, he wants to test whether your faith is genuine, he wants, he doesn't want any, any, he wants to shred you, take you apart. Pray that God would protect you in that testing. Pray that you would avoid that testing. That, that's specifically what he tells them to be praying for. And they, of course, that night are going to scatter. When, they, when Jesus gets arrested, initially they're going to band together, Peter's going to cut off the high servant's ear, and then they're going to skedaddle. One of them is going to skedaddle naked. Uh, Mark includes that detail. Um, but, which seems to be someone's trying to grab a hold of him, gets his cloak, and he just scurries out of it and keeps running. Probably John Mark. Um, probably John Mark. So, but that's what Jesus is telling them to pray for, specifically their own, um, their own, that trial's coming. Pray that God help you get ready for it. And they fall flat on their faces and fail because they don't listen to what he says. Dave Kingery? All right. The king. Yeah. You're um, in contradiction to uh, this uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life and all this stuff. Oh, am I? Oh, dear. Yes. And (laughs) I I heard all this stuff on on Christian TV, so you're... It's got to be. If it's on Christian TV, Dave, it has to be true. (laughs) And everything that they won't let, they don't let it on the internet unless it's true. I saw they saw that on a web page. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and, and this no, but what your point's well taken. Certainly, depending on what you mean, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Ten thousand years from now, you will think God's plan for your life was wonderful. You will not be able to improve upon it. What we generally, it, it all has to do with from what vantage point you're sitting. If you're sitting from a God-centered vantage point. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He, he will maximize his glory. He will cause you to know him, and he will cause you to reflect his glory in a way that is good. We generally think wonderful plan, ease, comfort, health, wealth, prosperity. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Um, Three times Paul asked the Lord to take away his thorn in his flesh, and his response is, my power is perfected in your weakness. That might be God's good plan for your life. God might say, I want to show how powerful I am through how weak you are. Those are the types of answers we see in the New Testament. And that's a wonderful plan from the right vantage point. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more eagerly in my weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul gets it, and he says, I think that's a great plan. Even though I prayed three times, the Lord would change it. I think it's a great plan. So sure, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It all, it's all comes down to definitions of terms and what we mean. But if you tell that to somebody who doesn't have a God-centered view of things, what they're going to hear is God wants life to be easy, comfortable, healthy, fun. You know? And that's absolutely not what you see in the New Testament of the Bible. So yes, if I've been contradicting your best life now, um, 
let's make a simple point. If you are living your best life now, you are headed for hell. Exactly. Listen, if you're a Christian, this is as bad as it ever gets. It only gets better. If you're a non-Christian, this is as good as it ever gets. Okay? So, sorry. Yeah, I, I, at one time, I think I used to buy into that stuff. I, 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 I thought that uh, anything bad happened would be, a, would be is certainly out of God's will, but then I got acquainted more with Scripture, which says it's God's will. <laughs> I read will. the Bible, yeah. Yeah, uh. exactly. It, it's <laughs> yeah. actually God's will to suffer. Yeah. I, 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 and, and that makes more sense. You know, when you're told that uh, uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life and everyone should, you should be happy and peaceful, no trials, no temptations or anything. Right. And then when these things happen, it causes you to doubt Christianity and you don't even believe the right thing anyway right. to begin with. So No, no, that's why we need to set things straight now. I mean, I'm sure some of you have already gone through the whirlwind or maybe you're in the whirlwind, but it's far better to learn this before you enter the whirlwind than to try to change this in the midst of it. I mean, and, and sadly, you meet people who their legs are knocked out from underneath them, their life falls apart, their marriage fails, the, the disease comes, the death comes, the job loss. And they're reeling not only from the suffering of that specific affliction, which is real suffering, but from this sense of, why have you forsaken me, God? What, I, what, what gives? And so there's a double whammy of suffering. There's the vexation of, I thought God loved me. Why would he let this happen? Which comes from a wrong understanding of, I mean, probably one of those profound points somebody made to me about God's love is a friend of mine asked me, does, did the, does the father love the son? Yes. Did it please the father to crush the son? Yes. You got to factor that into your view of love. There's room in God's love for his children for suffering and trials. Um, there, there, there has to be room for that. And, and any parent knows that. I, my children, I want them to grow up and become strong, which will involve hard work, discipline. Um, it'll involve um, suffering. They're going to want things. I'm going to have to say no. They're going to cry, right? And it's not because I hate them. And I'm not giving them scorpions and stones, even though I don't give them candy every time they ask for it. So, I mean, every parent gets that. Uh, but... It, it is difficult if all you think is you sort of buy into a works relationship with God. Not a works salvation, but it looks something like if I do my devotionals and if I am a good person and if I go to church and if I give, then you're going to give me the things that I want, right? And then when God doesn't give me the things that I want, we say, hey, what gives? I went to church and I've been good and I didn't cheat on my taxes. And so what goes on? Um, and that, that's why I'm really thankful for guys like John Piper who, who point out the goodness of God in bringing us through trials. Um, I mean, he, he makes the question, asks the question, uh, which I'll throw out to you guys. Look back at your life. Was it through the hard times or the good times where you drew closer to God? I think pretty uniformly, it was the hard times that cast us upon the rock of ages. I've never heard someone's testimony. Well, how did you mature in the faith? Well, life got easy, and I was successful. And what do you know? I started growing in godliness. You know, I started growing. I was just drifting right into righteousness. It was just so easy. 
Um, I, it's, I woke up one day, I was like, wow, I've gotten righteous all of a sudden, and life's good. Never heard that testimony. Never heard that testimony. So, yeah. No, it's, yeah, and then when, you're, when you think you're righteous, then you get a, one of these suffering tests, and then it... <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray is, God, don't let me be any happier than I am holy. Yeah. And, and watch out when you pray for humility. <laughs> That's the other piece of advice I'll give. Watch out for that one. Okay. Other questions? Oop, Scott Green. I had brought this up a little bit earlier. Yeah. And it was about the will of Jesus at this point and the will of God. Oh. Okay. Let me expound on that. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me try to frame this. So the tension is this. In fact, some of your Bibles may even have um, a note that says verse 43 and 44 are absent from some text. There's a debate over the issue of what's going on here. On the one, ha- on the one hand, um, if we allow for Jesus to have a distinct will from the Father that is really fully distinct, then you end up with conflict in the Godhead, and you have a really hard time with God being one. Um, Jesus saying, it's always my will to do the Father's will. So that's one guardrail you've got to watch out for. Um, if you if you have Jesus and the Father opposing, doing different, wanting different things constantly, you really end up with either tritheism or, or something other than the God of the Bible. On the other hand, uh, if you try to attribute all these utterances of Jesus simply to his humanity, you end up with a schizophrenic Savior. And I've literally heard people going through the New Testament, well, this is Jesus speaking from his divinity, and this is Jesus, and the woman touches him, and doesn't, he doesn't know who touched him. Well, that's human Jesus speaking, and you almost have to decide every time Jesus, okay, is this the divine Jesus, or is this the human Jesus? And he's one person. Um, and so there's a lot of debate over that, and that's the debate you're bringing up. Um, one of the things that's inescapable is at least in this prayer and in this place, we can distinguish the will of Jesus and the will of the Father. Because what Jesus wills doesn't happen, and what the Father's wills does. Except that what Jesus ultimately wills is what happens. Because what he says, ultimately I want, is what you want. However, I'd like the cup to pass. But if that's not what you want, don't do that. So, like I said, I've, I've read, and usually in sort of reform circles, you'll get into these big discussions of the hum, humanity of Jesus and Jesus according to his human nature. And they, they did a whole, uh, in the 7th century, they hammered the sound, I think, at Chalcedon, where they, according to his humanity, according to his divinity. And there is some biblical warrant for that. I mean, if you go to Romans 1, Paul's Christology in Romans 1 does kind of follow that pattern some. I just want to use Scripture as kind of a governor for how far to go down these roads. So there is some biblical way of speaking this way. So Paul's Christology in Romans 1, um, look at it in, ooh, just pick up 1-1. One, one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. 
So there he's, he's finding two tracks. There's Jesus. You can speak about Jesus according to the flesh. He's the son of David. But he's also the son of God according to the spirit of power. So there's the beginnings of those types of paths where you start looking at, okay, is this... Personally, I, I don't have any interest in trying to resolve the tension. So I'll, I'll highlight the tension you're talking about. And I certainly don't want to go and become a heretic and say, you know, there's three gods. Or... And I also don't want to go to where Jesus is sort of schizophrenic, or at the very least, you have to decide in every time, is that human Jesus or is that divine Jesus? And I'm willing to let there be mystery and, and tension. Um, you certainly have got your finger on the issue, and I certainly agree. We don't want to go over the bounds where we have for all of eternity two conflicting wills in the Godhead. But I also don't want to get to the point where every time Jesus is talking, we're trying to figure out, is that the human Jesus or is that the divine Jesus? Um, do you want to say more? I've, I've more just tried to frame it, tell you where I'm at in it. But. That's good. And the risk with saying there's two different, then is there are three different. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, then you end up with three. No, absolutely. Yes, Matt. So if there's an idea out there that they're really different, then... Couldn't have Jesus just followed his own and turned the cross into an amusement park ride? I right, mean, right. No, that's, if, if his right. will was truly not to do what God's will was, mm. he could have stopped it. Right. My, my guess would be something like, um, this is my attempt, I'll, I'll tell you my working hypothesis, which is about worth as much as you pay for it, which is to say nothing. Um, you know, because one of the things, I mean, we should just pause for a minute. When we're trying to figure out the incarnation of God, and we're, we're going beyond what's written, we should be very suspicious of our abilities to intuit and reason our way into something so profound. Um, my guess, though, <laughs> with that said, I'll ignore my own warning. One of the ways I deal with God changing his mind in the Old Testament, so God, let's use um, the destruction of Israel in Exodus 32. So Aaron makes the golden calf, Israel plays the whore, they bow down to Baal. And God calls Moses up on the mountain. He says, I'm going to kill them all and start over a new nation with you. And then Moses intercedes and God relents. Was God not serious when he said he was going to kill them? Was that just a fake threat? Because he knew what Moses was going to do. And I tend to think it's something like, God, as he relates to things in time, will do what is right and good and holy and just. And as things now stand, in other words, I would read it as probably God saying, as things now stand, here's what I'm going to do. And then things change. What changes? A righteous intercessor stands up and pleads for the people. And now with this changed situation, God says, I will relent. Okay? So Jesus is perfect, but he's not functionally omniscient. He's not walking around. And, and again, we're getting into weird qualifications. Jesus never loses his divine attributes, um, but he clearly is not using them all the time. He's not omnipresent in the Gospels. He's certainly not functioning in omnipresence. He's in one localized place. Um, he certainly, unless he's deceiving us, doesn't know everything functionally. He's not, he's not using that knowledge. So here's this perfect person, and I think he's responding with the knowledge he has. My guess would be something like that. So from Jesus' vantage point with the information he has and his own desires to avert the wrath of his father, his own desires not to... I mean, you and I have a hard enough time owning up to guilt when we're guilty. I mean, you know how hard it is to say, yeah, that was me, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Jesus has to take all of our sin, and he's not guilty. Um, so from, his, from that perspective, 
Yes, if there's a way this doesn't have to be done. See, Jesus has to trust by faith this is the only way. Because if he's not functionally omniscient, if he was functionally omniscient, he would know this is the only way. Not being functionally omniscient, he has to trust that not only is this the Father's plan, but this is the only plan that could ever happen. I'm guessing something. This is all my guesswork, and so I want to much more back off and just say it's a mystery, let's worship God. But that'd be my guess, something like that. Which means then that once Jesus is glorified and he is using his divine attributes, the possibility of there being any difference in the wills is eliminated. Given my hypothesis that Jesus, given what I know, this is what seems good, yet Father, your will but mine be done. Now Jesus knowing, functionally knowing everything, there's no possibility of any disjunct. But you're left still with not my will, but here, in this moment at least, the will of Jesus and the will of the Father are distinct. There's no way around that without doing violence to the text. So then everyone wants to try to not have that unravel the deity of Christ fully. So does that clarify or muddy? We'll find out. Doug. Well, I was just curious. This, um, Jesus many times gives the perfect answer, and it's having known their heart. So I struggle sometimes with functionally not knowing, but yet he always gives the perfect answer, the perfect teaching. Yeah. My, my guess is, well, go back to Luke 4. Um, and, and again, the, I'm just trying, th- these are mysteries, Doug, so I'll give you my best answers, but like the person who comes up and says they can explain the incarnation to you fully would have to be God. <laughs> Like, this is, this is too, it's like ants trying to explain, them, you know, a rocket engine. Um, this is too, too big and deep for us. But I want to follow the clues from the text. So in Luke 4, Jesus um, is finished being tempted. In verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report about him went through all the surrounding countries and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So once Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, Luke wants us to see the events that follow in chapter 4 as the power of the Spirit. So I would therefore take it that when Jesus heals many in you know, 38 and 39 and rebukes the fever, we're not witnessing Jesus' divine power, but the Spirit's power at work in Jesus. And likewise, just as we have in the Old Testament, prophets being given knowledge of things they shouldn't know or couldn't normally know, except the Spirit of God. So Elijah, is it Elijah or Elisha's servant? Is it Elijah or Elisha who Naaman deals with Naaman? Is it Elijah or Elisha? Oh, someone's got to look that one up. I heard Elisha, so we got to find out. But, But there, if you remember, Naaman wants to pay the prophet and the prophet says no. But then the servant runs after. Uh, my master changed his mind. And the prophet curses him with leprosy. How do they know? How do they know? So one possibility is, and what I tend to lean towards, is that just as the prophets of God in the Old Testament trusted on the Father when they needed extra information to receive extra information, that something like that's how Jesus, I couldn't prove that, um, I couldn't prove that. I like it because it makes Jesus, the less, I use a video game phrase, the less cheat codes Jesus is using in the incarnation, the more he, in my mind, can relate to me 
and the more he truly is the second Adam. If Jesus doesn't rely upon any advantages that the first Adam didn't have, the more that comparison of triumphing works. So that's the best guess I have for how he knows. When Jesus knows things, like how did he know Satan requested to sift Peter? Either Jesus is now using his omniscience or the Father revealed that to him. Um, I, I couldn't prove to you which one of those is right. But, yeah, no, fair enough. Did somebody else want something? Or? Other questions? Elsa. She's figuring out whether it's Elijah or Elisha. Lois. But do let us know when you find out. Is Elisha? Thank you. Okay. You just mentioned that um, when Jesus had the Holy Spirit, had Jesus in the Holy Spirit, something. Yeah. And so I got to looking back in in uh, Luke, and it talks about when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him. Yes. Um, was the Holy Spirit not? I guess I'm. Puzzled by that. It's, it, no, no, it, it is, it is, uh, it is interesting. Um, the Holy Spirit definitely settled, descends on Jesus and remains on him. That's John's language. The one on whom you see the Spirit remain. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go upon people, but there's no lifelong endowment of the Holy Spirit. So you read through the book of Judges, the Holy Spirit came upon, the Holy Spirit left. The Holy Spirit comes to equip from work and from ministry, whether it's building the accoutrements of the tabernacle. I mean, the Holy Spirit came upon some of the artisans to make the gold um, pomegranates and, and things for the ark. Uh, the Holy Spirit would come upon leaders. The Holy Spirit was upon Saul in the first years of his kingship and then departed him. So the Holy Spirit may or may not have come upon Jesus, but what, what is a dividing line in the sand. We don't see him work any miracles prior to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in, in the Gospels, and he hasn't begun his ministry. In fact, Luke's the only one who gives us any events of Jesus prior to um, his baptism. And all the other Gospels start there. Um, so there's something different about that. So whether or not Jesus, the Holy Spirit, ever came upon him, I don't know. What we, I think we're meant to see what happens at his baptism as a unique event, and the Holy Spirit's empowering and staying with him as a new thing. Whether or not he had any interaction with the Holy Spirit prior to that, I know not. Um, it's um, a, a puzzle to me. I wouldn't have thought that Jesus needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be doing these miracles and stuff. He's God. No, no, he is, he is. And this gets back to, again, what I was saying is, um, as you try to figure out what's going on in the incarnation, there's mystery. And so I, I'm throwing out my best guesses. Luke, I'm taking my cues from Luke 4. He returned in the power of the Spirit, so that when Jesus begins working miracles, I think Luke wants me to see, ah, look at the power of the Spirit upon Jesus from his baptism, not, ah, look at Jesus, the divine miracle worker, in his own right. Did Jesus only ever use the power of the Spirit to work miracles? I couldn't prove that. I couldn't get dogmatic on that point. I tend to think that. Because again, I like, and it's always bad to come to conclusions because of what you want the answer to be. I like, well, go to Hebrews 2. Um, this, I can back it up with a bit more than I like, but it's still not certain. So in Hebrews 2, we read of the incarnation this. 
And this is kind of my governing, this is my default principle when I'm dealing with the incarnation. Unless the text tells me otherwise, I'm defaulting to Hebrews 2, 14 and following. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now we know that, that one of the limitations, one of the respects he's not made like us is he isn't a sinner, right? So clearly that's not an absolute statement. There are ways Jesus is not like us. But I, I take that to mean in every way that Jesus possibly could be like us, he was. So if Jesus has to rely on the Spirit like we do, I like that because it's one more point of comparison. It's one more similarity between us. I couldn't prove that, but that's kind of my default movement is moving Jesus to be like us. What I'm trying to really resist, especially in the text from this morning, is this sort of notion that um, because he's God, in a desire to hold on to and make Jesus God, and he is God, amen to that, we minimize his humanity. I had a professor, McDougall, who used to say we humanify Jesus' deity and deify his humanity. And so we picture him, this is going to be the pastor's pen for September, we picture him like Clark Kent. He may look weak and frail, but under that shirt's a big S. We know that. And so even though this looks like it's a really tough challenge, he's the God man. Of course, it's no problem. You know? And he, he's, he's, he's got all that. But the problem with that approach is when you start hearing things like he can sympathize with us, he, he, he's afflicted. And, and Hebrews 4, let us draw near our high priest. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, but one who's been tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. Let us therefore boldly draw near to the throne of grace. We may find help. The more dissimilar Jesus' experience on earth is to mine, the harder that verse is for me to really believe. You know, um, So I'm going to default gravitate to wherever I can have Jesus and my experience be similar, that's my, unless the text points some other way, because of Hebrews 2, that's where I'm default going. So if I have the option to suppose Jesus sometimes is functioning omniscience versus he's all the time just relying on the Spirit and the Father to tell him what he needs to know, I lean towards that answer. I couldn't prove it to you. I, I couldn't get dogmatic on it. Certainly those are two possible answers. But, but if you hadn't considered the other option, consider the other option. It's... it's uh, I, I, find it, I find it pretty attractive. I, I like that notion. Again, we need, and again, we need to be careful with trying to d- diagram too much and unpack a mystery. Um, Luke wants us to... But, oh, what time? Let's see, the sheen of the... I can't see the time on the clock. We've got eight minutes. Here's the thing I really, 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 really want to hold on to. I, I referenced it. Go to Hebrews 4. One of my most precious passages in the Bible is from Hebrews 4. I, I love this passage. And in counseling, I, I go to this passage. And in my own heart, my own life. Um, Hebrews four fourteen through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So, so understand this. There's two let us's in here, right? There's let us hold fast. In verse 16, let us draw near. So he's about to give reasons why 
we ought to hold fast and why we ought to draw near. Okay? So verses 14 through 16 provide the warrant, or the ground, for the, um, the, or, here's the, grammar, the oratory subjunctive, for the, the appeal, let us do these two things. And what it is is the priesthood and the, and the ability to relate of Christ. So he says, um, let us hold fast to our confession for, because, why, why should I hold fast to my confession? I don't want to. That's hard. Do it for, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. And if you work that double negative out, we don't have an unsympathizing high priest means what do we, what do we have? Priest who can sympathize, right? Um, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And if you so strengthen Jesus' deity that this is theater or something approaching theater in Luke 22, then when I'm tempted and I'm, and I'm feeling overwhelmed and I want to draw near to Jesus, if, if my experience and my wrestling isn't something like his, this verse falls apart. If Jesus, I mean, I've heard people describe Jesus' temptation as I could get a bunch of trash and maggots on a plate and try to tempt you with it. Ooh. And you're being tempted, but really you're not tempted. And I've heard people, when I was at Word of Life, I heard at least one guy use that example of Jesus' temptation. And they, they do it because they want to emphasize how pure and how holy and how righteous he is. Nothing in him wanted evil. And amen and amen and amen. But if Jesus' temptation is that, and I come to him and I say, Lord, I'm struggling, I'm weak, I want to do what's wrong, I'd imagine his response would be, why on earth would you want to do that? That's disgusting. And yet I'm supposed to draw near because he's been tempted in every way like me. That's one of the reasons this morning I was trying to draw out the fact that it was Jesus' holiness that was at work. It's not that Jesus has a bunch of sin in him that wants evil things. For Jesus, is exactly the polar opposite. All of his holiness says, no, I don't want to become guilty. No, I don't want to break up fellowship with the Father. But he, if Luke means anything, great drops like blood of sweat dropping to the ground. This is a real contest. This is a real battle. And that real battle and that real contest plugs right in here to verse 15. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. So I cherish the reality of Jesus' struggle, the reality of his battle with, with this because it makes me able to more confidently draw near when I'm struggling. So that's the, the so what for me. That's the so what for me. Um, so I, I really am, you probably have sense in trying to push back from anything that makes this not a life and death visceral battle and struggle, um, which is, I think, what Luke presents it to be. You have, is that more questions or is that Naomi? Let me know when we hit time. There's literally just glare on that clock. I cannot. But thank you. Yes, Naomi. So my question is, um, when Jesus was a child, before he really came into himself, like because it doesn't sound like he really knew he was God until around the age of 12 when he was in the uh, temple, etc. We don't know if it was until then. We know that by the time he's 12, he knows, he knows okay. who he is. Yes. But I'm also wondering, how does a toddler say no to temptation because every toddler I've ever seen when presented with a pretty shiny object grabs for it right. whether it's allowed or not. No, no. And this is where 
one of the differences with Jesus. Jesus is not born with a sinful nature. Um, so really, the best comparison is Jesus to Adam, because Adam was not made with a sinful nature. So just because you don't have a sinful nature doesn't mean you can't be successfully tempted. Adam was successfully tempted without a sinful nature. Um, so it's more, and this is the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the first Adam, the second Adam, the first man, the second man. Um, that's the type of categories Paul uses there. Is Jesus accomplishes what Adam failed to accomplish. So yes, we start sin addicts, sin junkies. Our nature is depraved and, and corrupt. And yet... That doesn't mean Jesus' temptation isn't real temptation. If you go back, you can go back in the podcast, but to Luke 4 where Satan tempts him, all of the carrots that Satan puts out are good things. You're hungry. You're the son of God. You have rights. You ought to be adored and worshipped. Command these stones to become bread. That's nothing fundamentally wrong in and of itself. Like you, you and my temptations are of two sorts. Sometimes we want wrong things. You know, and we just need to repent of that. You know, I I want people to praise me. I just need to kill that. Right? Other times, I want things that are good, and the temptation is getting them through a corrupt way. I want my wife to respect me. There's nothing wrong with that. Therefore, I will bully her into respecting me. Oh, that's wicked, right? And Abraham, I want a son. God's promised me a son. That's good. I'm going to sleep with my wife's handmaiden to get him. That's wrong. Jesus' temptations were always of the second sort. He never wanted something evil in and of itself. The temptation is always, here's a good thing, here's a shortcut to get it. So Satan offers him all, all of the kingdoms of the world, which Jesus wants, and he has and will receive from his father because of his death. The temptations, you don't need to go to a cross, just bow the knee to me. But it's a real carrot. Jesus, I believe, truly yearned, just in the same way when you're hungry or thirsty and you see a commercial for you know, something tasty, part of you is like reaching out to like, I want that. You know, I, I think something like that is truly taking place. It's a real temptation. Jesus desires the object put in front of him. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with desiring it. What he rejects is the wrong way to get it. No. <laughs> Don't put God to the test. No, you should only worship God. But it's a real temptation. Satan's not a dummy. I don't, I, again, I don't think Jesus' temptation is the, let me put trash under you and go, hmm. Satan picks real carrots, real value, real desirable objects for the Lord, and the temptation is always how he's going to get them. So Jesus' temptation is probably better compared to the temptation of Adam and Eve, who also likewise did not have sinful natures. So you're right. Every toddler you've met is a depraved sinner, dead in Adam. Jesus wasn't. That's part of the reason why the Holy Spirit is, he only has a human mother, not a human father. Something different. That is one of the discontinuities of Jesus' incarnation. He's not born sinful. He's made in every way like us, yet without sin. So that that absolutely, every toddler you've met, every toddler I've begotten is a sinner. Um, Absolutely. I can, any any parent can testify to that. Um, God, God makes them cute so that we don't, you know, they're vipers and diapers, people. Vipers and diapers. Let's, let's break. Thank you all. Have a good day.